Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic, and I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Viduanand, who is a specialist in echocardiography, valvular heart disease, among other conditions. Dr. Anand, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Today, I want to talk about aortic regurgitation, sort of from bedside to imaging to intervention, what type of intervention. Maybe we can start with a few basics. What is aortic regurgitation? Aortic regurgitation is leaky aortic valve. It can be caused by a number of different reasons. Abnormality in the valve leaflets or cusps itself or dilatation of the aortic root. Its uh, estimated prevalence is about 0.5 to 2.2% for moderate or greater severity. How do you diagnose it? Start, we'll start with physical examination and then we'll move on to imaging studies. Typically, the patients present with dyspnea on exertion. They may have heart failure symptoms on presentation. The first test that is usually ordered and helps with the diagnosis is echocardiography. Of course, the bedside examination is very important and critical as for all different cardiac conditions. On physical examination, some of the key features associated with aortic regurgitation include wide pulse pressure, low diastolic pressure, and in fact, the diastolic blood pressure lower than 60 millimeter mercury is associated with high mortality. So it's very important to pay attention to physical examination. Tachycardia is also associated with poor prognosis. Other than a wide pulse pressure, patients will have bounding pulses everywhere. And there's usually a holodiastolic decrescendo murmur of aortic regurgitation auscultated at upper sternal border. And the severity is typically uh, suggests the degree of uh, regurgitation or severity of regurgitation. However, in patients with acute regurgitation, the murmur may not be as loud as one would expect. Then there are other signs of left heart failure that may be present as well. Um, you have someone in front of you and you think it, there may be aortic regurgitation. What's the next step? Yes, so after a suspicion of aortic regurgitation from history and, and physical examination, sometimes even ECG and chest X-ray can be really helpful, could show cardiomegaly or left ventricular hypertrophy on ECG. And they then the next test that's ordered and usually helps with the diagnosis is echocardiography. Echocardiography plays a key role in both diagnosis, ascertaining the mechanism, etiology of aortic regurgitation, as well as to determine if patient may have certain uh, markers or uh, indicators to determine the timing for surgery. Using echocardiography, we can determine the severity. It's very important in aortic regurgitation that a comprehensive assessment of valve morphology, etiology, and mechanism of aortic regurgitation is performed, and a very detailed evaluation of degree of regurgitation through quantification is very important because the jet can be eccentric, and visual estimation using color, Doppler, may not be adequate to, and is usually not adequate to evaluate the severity. So every attempt should be performed to quantify the degree of regurgitation and quantify by either 
PISA estimation to determine the regurgitant volume or by some other measures such as vena contracta, the width of the jet and looking at the abdominal aorta for the holodiastolic reversals which indicate severe AR. Once the severity is determined, it's also very important to look at both etiology and mechanism. And it's important to keep in mind that those two things are separate. There are three different mechanism types. Type one is associated with normal cusp motion. So it's either caused by leaflet perforation or dilated ascending aorta. Type two is associated with excess cup cusp motion as is seen in bicuspid aortic valve. Type three is associated with restricted cusp motion, which is seen in inflammatory valve disease, such as syphilis, lupus, and sometimes bulky infective endocarditis vegetations can also restrict the leaflet motion. Now, this is mechanism and it's different from etiology. And I'll give you an example. So a patient with infective endocarditis can either have type one mechanism because of leaflet perforation or type three because of restricted leaflet motion. Similarly, ascending aortic aneurysm can have a type one mechanism because of normal leaflet motion and just incomplete coaptation or type three because of a dissection flap prolapsing through the cusp or even type two if there is bicuspid aortic valve and associated with cusp prolapse. It's important to differentiate between the two because it can affect the surgical planning and, and management for the patient. Got it. So mechanism, etiology, obviously are different. When you're first seeing the patient, because in a minute we'll talk about timing of interventions and types of interventions because there's a lot of new findings coming out in that space. But again, just to make sure we cover our table uh, with the basics before we move on, so when you see a patient with aortic regurgitation, you're already thinking of a broad differential. Maybe you can lay that out a little bit more on what kind of testing do you do to make sure you're not going to miss something in that differential. That's a great question. So typically, echocardiography is the first test that would help you diagnose the condition and the severity. But sometimes transthoracic echocardiogram is not enough because the jet may be very eccentric and may even be difficult to quantify. So it's important to use other modalities use, such as transesophageal echocardiogram or cardiac MRI when the diagnosis is questionable or the mechanism and etiology are unclear. Then the next step, like you mentioned, timing for surgery, and there also there is role of different modalities. Besides echocardiography and using other modalities such as TEE, transesophageal echocardiography or cardiac MRI, which has role in determining timing for surgery, there is also a role of cardiac biomarkers that is being explored to identify the optimal timing for surgery. Review maybe a little bit, what, when is the optimal timing? How do you relate to imaging findings or and of those, you and others have been making some recent observations about volumes versus linear measurements. Tell us about the impact of those and what exactly does that mean? That's a great question. Before we dive into it, I want to just spend a few uh, moments to talk about the natural history of aortic regurgitation. It was studied uh, from 1970s to 80s and 90s by Dr. Bono and his group. Uh, aortic regurgitation, as we know, causes both pressure and volume overload to the left ventricle, which leads to eccentric hypertrophy and left ventricular dilatation. This left ventricular dilatation is well tolerated for years, sometimes decades, before there is onset of irreversible myocardial injury that is followed by systolic dysfunction or drop in ejection fraction, followed by symptoms and then death. 
so now knowing this natural history of the disease, the aortic valve surgery part guidelines is recommended for symptoms irrespective of uh, ejection fraction. And in asymptomatic patients, if there is drop in ejection fraction less than 55%, or there is significant left ventricular enlargement, left ventricular end systolic dimension more than 50 millimeter, or index end systolic dimension more than 25 millimeter per meter square. Now, these cutoffs come from old studies from 1980s and 90s and estimated using linear dimensions and M-mode echocardiography, which has its inherent limitations. And at that time, there was high surgical mortality, up to 10 to 20% of aortic valve surgery. Since then, there has been advancement in surgical techniques, and we have newer generation prosthetic valves. So it's time to relook at the optimal timing for surgery. So our uh, group here at Mayo Clinic did a study evaluating the role of left ventricular volumes in determining the optimal timing for surgery. Left ventricular remodeling or size is better evaluated through volumetric assessment, which is now recommended by American Society of Echocardiography Chamber Quantification Guidelines. Left ventricular remodeling may not be symmetric, and the linear dimensions may not be able to capture the true enlargement. And our group found that volumes were better and more strongly associated with outcomes such as mortality as well as symptoms. And they were independent and more strongly associated with these outcomes. An interesting finding was that nearly 30% patients in our cohort had LV dimensions that were below the cutoff for intervention per guidelines, but had enlarged volume more than 45 ml per meter square, which is the cutoff determined through spline curve analysis. So 30% patients had already significant left ventricular remodeling and enlargement, which is not captured by linear dimension. And the study kind of suggested that the left ventricular remodeling and aortic regurgitation may be like a football rather than a soccer ball and more oblong and more pronounced from base to apex and not captured adequately by the linear dimensions. So there is a role of left ventricular volumes. It does need to be assessed further in prospective studies and multi-center studies before it can be incorporated into the guidelines. But at this point, I do think in patients who are low surgical risk, younger patient, and have enlarged volume, it should be considered in the shared decision-making while determining the timing for surgery. So clearly, as, as we have more sophisticated measurements, we can see subtleties in the patterns that that one summary measurement obviously is gonna miss. And I think we'll be learning more. And so today in your practice, then you're taking this into account and discussing it with the patient. If the volume is increased, even if the linear dimension is still within what would have been considered a watch and wait number. Exactly, yes. So our center is a center of excellence and we have very low operative risk. So in patients who are young and are overall low risk for operation, I do consider this in shared decision-making. Besides this, there are a number of other novel markers that are being evaluated and have been studied, uh, such as global longitudinal strain assessment through echocardiography. So if it is less negative than 19.5%, if there is presence of 
uh, fibrosis as assessed by late gadolinium enhancement in cardiac MRI, suggesting subclinical myocardial dysfunction, or if there is a serial drop in ejection fraction but hasn't yet met the cutoff of less than 55% or serial echoes showing increase in LV size, uh, then those are other things that we consider. There's also a role of biomarkers such as NT, BROPNP that is being evaluated. So a lot of things are being evaluated to determine the optimal timing of surgery, which is certainly needed in low-risk patients to have the best patient outcomes, particularly in centers of excellence. Yeah, no, really remarkable how we're understanding the, d the disease better and therefore able to diagnose its trajectory and, and determine when to intervene. Which then brings up the next point. You decide that an intervention is warranted, either because of, of volumes, because of standard dimensions, because of symptoms. What treatment options now are there to choose from? Because that's evolving as well. It's no longer simply aortic valve replacement. And so tell us about those and, and how you decide. Yes, so if uh, we determine that patient uh, needs surgery and it is the right time, then the options are aortic valve replacement, either mechanical or bioprosthetic valve. And to decide between the two, we take into account a number of different things, but the most important is age of the patient. So in younger patients, we typically prefer mechanical valves, which have a longer life, although the downside is patients need lifelong anticoagulation with warfarin. But there is a role of aortic valve repair particularly in younger patients who are active in lifestyle and want to avoid anticoagulation. At this time, the role is maybe a little bit limited, but as the surgery is perfected to achieve durability and long-term success and made widely available, I think it is going to be expanded in terms of its, its use. And here at Mayo Clinic, certainly, we have surgeons who can perform aortic valve repair with good success and very low uh, risk of complication. And it is a really attractive option, particularly, as I mentioned, for younger patients with bicuspid aortic valve. So as you look into your crystal ball into the future, what do you think is, uh, will be the big impacting new developments affecting aortic regurgitation into the next oh, two to five years or a little beyond? I see that uh, we will be offering surgery to patients earlier than the cutoff and guidelines, and those cutoffs are um, likely to change, and they will include volumetric assessment and some of the novel markers, such as later gadolinium enhancement uh, assessment by MRI and maybe left ventricular global longitudinal strain. There might even be, there would be emphasis on indexed dimensions and indexed volumes, which are very important for women, because uh, women uh, can have a significant LV enlargement before they reach the cutoff of 50 millimeter. So it's very important to have index numbers. And so I see that uh, being highlighted in the guidelines. And I see that there may be even more role of aortic valve repair and, and expansion of the centers of expertise. So one size does not fit all. As, as we learn more, centers of excellence will really be leading the charge in these newer diagnoses and treatments. And then I'm gonna ask you to speculate because speculation is the only thing any of us can do in, in this next question, but mm -hmm. that is we've seen more and more valve procedures become 
either percutaneous or minimally invasive as opposed to open surgeries. Aortic regurgitation has been a little recalcitrant to that approach thus far. Do you, do you see that changing in the future? And, and just comment on that if you would. I think that is, again, a great question. And as centers of experience and, and excellence expand and uh, the valve repair and robotic or uh, minimally invasive surgeries are uh, perfected and to achieve both long-term success and durability, because those are somewhat of concerns at this point, I see that they, the in future, their utilization will expand and there are certainly more attractive options for younger patients in particular. Dr. Vidunan, thank you for joining me. Really an interesting topic that's seen a lot of evolution and a lot of exciting things to come. Thank you for a very informative discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.